Second Samuel, where we have been studying the life of David, is where the core of our teaching will be today. But I do want to anchor it in some areas that we as well had looked at last week. In other words, some principles that help us to understand what's being spoken of in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has pictures for us that are revealed in the New Testament as principles. We call them doctrine. We call it truth. And so whenever we get a chance to consolidate the thinking and moving back into the history, it just benefits us. It anchors us. So very often I use that word, let's get anchored, and scriptures that help identify what the Lord is going to show us in a picture in the life of David, his man, the challenges that he faced. And by the way, in this area of Second Samuel, David's life definitely takes on changes. It takes on spiritual changes. It takes on the consequence of sin. It takes on a new revelation of God in dealing with the sinner. Very often we get hung up on the transgressions of men, failing to realize that it is at that time that God reveals his greatest work. We're so into failure. We're so into, again, this concept of shaming. And God says, I'm not into that. I was into the solution for that. And that's been settled. And so we really want to be those who settle on truth not lies. It's the enemy who points the finger, shakes his head, speaks venomously with his tongue, endeavors to bring division within the body, and to consider us non-essential. People are taking their lives because they do not understand that grace has been granted, and they do not have to live under condemnation, nor do they have to succumb to the scorn of people who've judge them intentionally, maliciously, and for an outcome which ultimately leads to demise. So right here in First Peter, and though we have referenced it before, I would like to return here, and that would be right now in verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not think it strange. So First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. That was one of our songs today, an anthem for our times that we're living in. We're to be joyful, expectant in the glory that shall be revealed in these latter days. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And their part, on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Ultimately, by what 
is slanderously spoken, maliciously intended to bring us down. But it says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. A lot of things are being spoken about what matters today. But God would say that his son matters the most. Out of all issues, out of all grievances, there is none that matters more greatly than that the Son of God is received gladly, that his word is lifted up in honor and esteemed as the means by which God communicates us the inerrancy of his truth. We don't have to question it. We can grab a hold of those promises and we can with certainty know that the Lord God shall fulfill them very often in our lifetime, but also relative to our faith in the course of our lifetime. In our lifetime, in the course of our lifetime, you know, a river likes to run straight, but very often it meanders around obstacles until eventually as the years pass, it cuts through those obstacles and becomes aligned to make its progress towards the point of least resistance. Sometimes in our lives, we likened as literally a reservoir of spiritual water being poured out face obstacles of resistance that the Lord allows to take time and ultimately discipline that as we remain steadfast in the outpouring of the Spirit, those objects of defiance, those things that stand in the way of God, experience a spiritual erosion, a softening, a diminishing of what at one time was an encumbrance. And it becomes, to the Lord, a beautiful pathway that we're a part of, a riverway, a water concourse, ultimately heading out into a huge containment, a pool likened to the sea of nations, likened to a bath, a reservoir, God has a lot of things that he teaches us in our life with regard to the hardships that we are to endure. And praise God, it is the believers that no longer or those who at one time may have been able to say, I was a murderer, if not in fact, certainly in my mind, which puts me in the same indictment. Because those things are rampant these days. I was once a thief and not a giver. The Lord has changed my disposition. And I render to him what is his, and I give above and beyond. Of what? Your life, the substance of what you have. What you have is the Lord's to use. What you use is a blessing for others to be able to be beneficiaries of. How does this relate to David? So remember, in last week's teaching, David was exercising kindness to the household of Saul, 
who was his avowed enemy. Oh, it wasn't David's enemy. David loved Saul. Saul hated David. He had made a vow that he would not have David live on the face of the earth to be a challenge to ultimately his kingship. And so in 10 years, 10 years of running from a man who was consumed in taking David's life, he sought his comfort and encouragement from God and then ultimately transferred everything that he would have poured out to Saul, everything that he intended to pour out to Jonathan in a pledge to Mephibosheth. I want to remind you of those who have studied this before, but names are important. don't think I mentioned it last week. But when Mephibosheth comes in on the scene, an appearance that he makes before David, and I know that we had looked at that as you know, a picture of humility in which his past history would have been something that certainly he could have lived to excuse his life hiding from what he was. That was paralyzed. He was crippled. He was lame. He very likely could have been scoffed at and felt very bad about himself. He would have had some suspension in being able to worship as the common people or as those who would be conducting ministry because of his lameness. And it's a picture as well that's really important to be reminded of that he was able to see the king because the king beckoned for him. He couldn't walk to the king. He was beckoned to the king. And then everything that was essential for him to make it to the king was wide open. We have people today that think they have to work to see the king. Actually, all they have to do is receive the invitation to see the king. But at any rate, to get back to this very, I think, special naming and something that to me stands out as just a highlight of what God does when he shines his light into the dark places of our life. And it says in his name that he is one who destroys shame. That's what Mephibosheth's name means, one who destroys shame. How can that be? If he was, in fact, as vulnerable as has been implied in the injury that he suffered from, the handicap that he lived out his entire adult life, and how can it be that his name means anything to us? Well, here's the answer. Sin destroys as well each one of us. And the Lord would say that in the presence of the king, the relationship that we have with our God, it's not we in our own strength. It's literally the Lord who becomes the destroyer of shame. Many people have tried to do it in their strength, in their strategies. But it's the work of the king going before those who are hilt, lame, out of adjustment because of sin. Not anything can do it but the Lord, the Lord God. Entering into that, and also remaining just in a couple more verses here, finishing up on First Peter, if we must suffer, verse 16 says, as a Christian, then let him, 
not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in the manner by which the suffering has been allowed. And if it is through the brutality of a culture that's bent on the destruction of individuals or slandering you as a believer, let it be then to the glory of God in what it is you choose to do and what you as well choose not to do in reciprocating. Remember, we kind of talked about that last week, how certain things just weren't working out for me. And then I was shown just an illustration of how was I in my mind and in my heart when I was observing slander and shame. And when I realized that in certain episodes leading up to that and certain episodes that have followed it, I realized, wow, we are all so vulnerable. I was sent on a mission to get some breakfast goodies. We celebrated my father-in-law's 80th birthday, so we went up there. And so Christy's brother Kevin and our family, mom and dad, all the cousins, and then our Canadian cousins, Christy's sister Kim, she joined us in a Zoom kind of meeting. It was great, though. But it was a small tribe, so we had to feed them. We had to feed them a lot of food. And Christy thought, this would be really special if you just go out and get tater tots. Okay, so you already know what my mind's thinking. And it's thinking, I'm a Baconator. Tater tots are okay, but they're not exactly on my top list. I was sent on a mission, though, tater tots. Okay, I want to link this. This is important to link this. Mephibosheth was promised by David in chapter 9, you will eat at my table. You will have everything that you need to satisfy your appetite. Get this mission. Get in my car. Part of me is actually delighting in the independence I have momentarily. Here's why. I was insatiably hungry. When did you send me out on the mission? Well, it was a time when the insatiability of a man's appetite just could not be fully appeased by doing a mission of shopping. And yes, you've predicted it. Dairy Queen was like a stone's throw from the house. And yes, you know where I'm going with this. They were serving up breakfast. All I had to do was drive to the window. It was like 25 yards. Am I right? Oh, she's doing that because I didn't tell her what I did. She's just finding out about it now. That's why I'm getting the look. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> Mephibosheth has everything he needs, and so do I. But Dairy Queen was crying out to me. I was just going to make an inquiry, that's all. So I rolled up to the window just for my inquiry. Do you serve breakfast sandwiches? And the communication was really fuzzy to where I was being challenged what it was I was asking, what it was I wanted. And it was kind of just making me hungry again. 
I really think the Lord wanted me to pass on it and wasn't. And so I got louder communicating what I wanted. Did you say this? I said, yes, I did say that. So you want a breakfast sandwich? Yes. The biscuit one. Are they fresh biscuits? Whatever. I'll take a fresh biscuit or a muffin. That's fine. Do you have bacon? Listen, whatever you said, I want bacon, and I want double portions of bacon. I'm telling you the truth. You'll see where I'm going with this. And so the sandwich came, and I was very careful to look through the window to make sure everything was being done right about my sandwich, although they went to the back room and I couldn't really see. But at any rate, that's what I did. I'm on a mission to get tater tots for the tribe, and I detoured to get this breakfast sandwich for myself. And before I was even out of the parking lot, it was in me and all over me. And I wiped off the bacon juice, and I said, I've done no wrong. <laughs> so now I'm going to find a store that she told me I could find. I couldn't find it. So it led me to a McKay's. Got the tater tots. And I did get some other things, because the counter was crying out at me. Shoppers, did you get everything you need? I got my tater tots, but the counters were, they had other goodies there. So I threw some of them in the bag, but I also destroyed the receipt because I knew I could. <laughs> okay, it gets better. So I'm ready to go back, satisfied in my mission, and I'm going down the street. Charl Charleston, is that where we're at? And isn't there another Charleston that probably I, now that I've told you this, probably will be sent to? like on the East Coast. So at any rate, going down the street, and I feel really accomplished, satisfied. And then all of a sudden, this winky, blinky light says open, and fresh donuts. <laughs> Lord, you're so good <laughs> to me. Of course I can't refuse you. But I should have known. The, the block was blocked off with cars in my way. There was stuff going on, and I really had to work hard to pull around the block to get parked and then to walk to my donut haven, only to realize I didn't have my mask. I had to, with shame, go back for my mask because I would have been shamed had I entered without it. And I went up to the counter. I specifically said, do you have fresh donuts? Oh, we do. And they did. And so I got one. And now I conclude. I get into the car, wipe the donut crumbs from my lips and the frosting still draping on my beard, thinking that I could also destroy that receipt. <laughs> and as I'm driving, I hit the radio station, which usually is set for one of our local Christian stations. And this haunting music came out and into my heart, into my ears. And I'm going, wow, I have not heard that song before. That's melting me like this donut in my belly. That's awesome. And the chorus was stunning to me. I'll see if I can retrieve it. Give me a second. Here it was. I'm being carried away with this melody. The woman had a beautiful voice. And I'm thinking, and this is the next contemporary Christian song. And for me, it was. Here's the chorus, constant cravings. 
Ooh, constant cravings. I've got, oh, Lord. That's what I had to go back to the house with. It was a song written in 1991, and I normally know all the songs from the 40s clear up to almost present day, but certainly up to the 80s and 90s. Never had heard this one because the Lord pulled it out of the archives for me that day. Lame and hilt. Richard, you've sat at the king's table. You've eaten the finest of foods. And you couldn't pass up Dairy Queen. <laughs> and you ordered double bacon. And then you satisfied yourself with getting the tater tots. But you also purchased the other things. And when that, at any rate, so Chrissy is hearing this live. Perhaps mom and dad and my family are hearing this live. I wanted to share that with you because to some degree it has a humiliation in it, a shame to it. Why? Because you, you know that there's nothing wrong in buying food. There's nothing wrong in tasting food. But when the Lord's working principles into your life, then one of the things that you need to know is the enemy is whispering divisiveness to your life. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, we can laugh at them because very likely you're laughing because you've been, at least the men have been in that same predicament. You know That's why the wives do better at shopping than we do because we come back with far more than we were asked to get. Our journey is never short like theirs is. It's a long and winding road that we take, many distractions. Let's take that and seal this up into this area of scripture, which identifies to each of us the challenges that we have when the kindness of the Lord has been expressed in the invitation to be a part of his table, to be a part of his community, his gifts and his fulfillment in our life and the real authentic challenges that we have in being one who knows it's best to eat what he has prepared, but that our appetite is insatiable for what the world can offer us as well. And Mephibosheth, remember in his name, one who destroys shame, I was able to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know there was a lesson in this, and I chose in the time of my lesson to do my own thing. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the illustration. David right now moves into a time in which kindness is rendered again to a person who would have been perceived as an enemy of the Jews, but it was actually a people group that David befriended in a time running from Saul. Let's pick up this picture. Chapter 10, it happened. It says, after this, that the king of the people of Amnon died. This is whom he had a friendship with. Saul didn't. The Ammonites were the first people that Saul, as a king, would have conquered, not obliterated, but taken care of very notably. And so the contrast between who David is representing here 
and what Saul intended to do back in his early days is striking. But the reason it's intended to be that way is that Saul represents a mind that was contrary to the work and will of God, which was to destroy the elements in the communities of sin that it might not plague and infect God's people. Saul just couldn't take care of the sin issue. Though we see that that is still a vulnerability that all of us have, David pictures both the vulnerability of being human, but also the great victories he had in trusting God fully for what he was able to achieve. David right now is showing that he moves from kindness to kindness, from an enactment of glory to greater glory. And he's doing so by ministering charity to one that ultimately reflects not his father's heart, but an enemy's heart. This is the son that replaces the one whom David is giving tribute to. When David was in his wanderings, this particular king that he very likely made a friendship with, perhaps a covenant of some type, was one that helped secure David from the consequence of Saul's anger. <clears throat> Saul was trying to kill him. So the son comes and reigns in his father's place. David said, I'm going to show kindness. <coughs> Do I have my water around here? Somewhere. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Rick. Yep, go. <laughs> it is? I'll take the second one, too. My cup is empty. It was a trick. Thank you. The Lord provides. <clears throat> he also showed me that sometimes I can still come up empty, but he provides. That's a good thing. Let's move back into this area right now. This may blow off, don't worry about it. David moves from an act of kindness to a greater act of kindness by doing what? As king, his commission would have been to take out the enemies of God's people. That would have been his attribute of justice to take out the enemy. What's he picturing right now? That God does not want to have enemies. He wants to make peace. This is going to come. It'll ultimately come under Solomon's rule, a time of peace. Ultimately, there's going to be a time of peace that will come under Jesus's rule on earth with us. But God asks for us as sons and daughters of the king to not make enemies, but to befriend them. Not to learn their ways, but to have them learn of the Lord 
and our ways in our relationship with God. As the one who was the figurehead of his kingdom has passed away, David says, I'm going to show the kindness of God to these people. The one who watched me was willing to cue me in when Saul was going to take my life. I'm going to return the favor. I'm not going to take them out, and I'm going to bestow upon his son as an act of kindness, as a means of showing grace, the grace of God. It says in that, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. It's a reciprocating. Even enemies, seemingly, of the church, interestingly enough, can have moments in which kindness prevails against their nature. And you need to understand that's a clue, that's a hint, that no matter how despicable individuals may have been, if you would, labeled, there are things that the Lord allows us to see that say that's the true heart of that person. Not what they've done in times past, not what they threaten to do currently, but in what I just saw, surprisingly. Have you ever been surprised by a person whose nature is actually quite contrary, quite carnal? And something happens and all of a sudden you're going, I think I got him wrong. I think I got her wrong. I think I'm wrong in what it is I'm thinking of them. And that's the idea. God thinks altogether differently about those people who, to us, deserve a cold shoulder, a harsh word. But in this reciprocation of kindness to a son, we also see the enemy at work. David sends by his hand his servants to comfort him concerning his father. He's, he's wanting to comfort. This is a picture, too, of what God has desired to give to all those who to receive, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You have the comfort of the Holy Spirit when you have a relationship in the one who has given his spirit, Jesus. David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon, verse 3, and the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? That's what the enemy does. The enemy always forges a question of integrity in the mind of the unbelievers. He tries to get them to skeptically look at the motive of why we do what it is we do, as opposed to receive from the hand of God an act of kindness, thoughtfulness. That's why it's so hard at times to make inroads into the cruel disposition of the world. Because Satan does what? He manipulates what they think. David's intentions were true. He had no other motive than to pass on another act of kindness. The principle, as we looked at last week, was that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads men to repentance. How do you take an enemy nation and convert them into a friendly nation? It's the kindness of God that ultimately will do that. The kindness of Christians in the land of Israel have persuaded 
many of them to become brothers and sisters in the faith, what we would call the remnant right now, because they don't understand why we would love them unconditionally and to love them on behalf of a God who sent his son, whom they have rejected and still do, waiting for Messiah, they don't understand. They don't understand how the love of God is not translating to them by condemning scriptures. This is where you're going. This is what's going to happen to you. They see the translation of the scriptures related to the love of God for them as a people group. And that is what has worked. Not the law that condemns them, but the law of liberty that sets them free. And because of that, the conversions are genuine. They are authentic as the day in which the Lord granted the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to speak truth and praise before the people of God. It says this in this skeptical reciprocation. David has sent these servants to search this city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it. Therefore, verse 4, Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. For the man, the Jewish nation in particular, Leviticus and Deuteronomy assigned them to grow their beards out. They weren't to shave them. Some may say, why? Here's why. The growing out of the beard for the Jewish men in those days was to distance them from the habits that they had learned in Egypt. Not all, but one of the things that they learned were fashion trends in Egypt. The Egyptians were a shaved people. They practiced the art of close grooming. And so God was removing from them, prohibiting them from identifying as once that nation had been in its trends different from the Jewish people. Some of them had moved in that direction. Some of them were vulnerable to take on a part of a cultural expression. We still have that, but praise God, the pictures in the Old Testament were to set a hedge of protection against vulnerability. We, in today, this marvelous liberty that God has given to us, we have afforded freedoms and opportunities to express ourselves in ways that God does not view as offensive. It may not be for us, but we have a variety of things that the Lord has allowed us to do. If I want to, and I have, I could wear a baseball cap in this church. I do, and sometimes I have. I shared that one time I did that intentionally. And the reason I did it intentionally is because I knew that potentially it could be a challenge in what is appropriate or not appropriate. But my baseball cap at the Western Wall allowed me free access to that wall. All of my sons who had hair and no caps, they had to go, they were sent back from the wall before they could even approach it to get a cap that indicates to the Jewish man that that's showing reverence to God. We on this end say, oh, the baseball cap shows a disrespect towards God. Not at all. We have liberty. 
So right now you're seeing that in this, it was an intentional act of shame for an intentional delivery of kindness and grace. The point being made is this. It happens. The very thing that you do as an act of kindness can be reciprocated in an act of maliciousness. And you'll ask, why did it happen? It's because that's what happens from a world. Shouldn't happen between believers, but it does happen to a world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the world rejects the only son of God, accepts almost anything other than God. And basically when we see this, it was an act to shame the ambassadors that the king had sent. Therefore, what is it that you and I experience today? We experience right now a cultural shaming of being a Christian because as a delegation of ambassadors, we come with the love of God, with the kindness of God, with the giftings of God, but also a moral compass from God. And though the others might be acceptable or okay, the moral compass, which is one of God's greatest gifts in terms of the Bible, is not accepted. You're just spying on us. You're just trying to see what changes you can make in our lives, our choices. And so we're going to humiliate you for that. The beard was cut. The robe was cut in half. So you can understand what that would have done. Exposure for men and women in those days was highly shameful. And in this case, that isn't what you would do with a man. So both spiritually by the cutting of the, of the beard and as well spiritually and culturally in the renting of the robe, these men were shamed. And David's authority was being challenged. That's what this was intended to do. The men, it says, came back. They told David. He sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. See, the clothing was something that they could have remedied with a garment from another person. Very often, that's the easiest thing to take care of. But it's the shaming of the beard that would have taken a longer time which is what you're needing to see here. Sometimes recovery of a shame is fast, easier to do than the other. The other takes time. In this case, the beard took time. David could have said, you'll get over it. The problem is, is that it's not so easy necessarily to get over. And David didn't want to impose any additional shame upon them. He's actually showing what we do when people have found themselves in a situation of being shamed spiritually. You cover it. You sequester them. You allow them to cloister in a place of safety. You take the position of standing before them or between them and others that are heckling and gawking, gossiping and slandering. That's what you do. It's a discipline. And the way that it happens is because you've been there. David knew what it was like as not only a king's son-in-law to be shamed in the efforts that were being made against his life, but also one who was a giant in the faith. He was actually a hero. He would have been the best of the best in terms of what people had thought of him in his early years and who now was just a faint memory 
to these people. They would have known his exploits. David covers them. Why? Because David's heart is kind. And he's also a picture of what God's love does. It covers us. What happens now? War. The account goes on to say that David now having covered those who didn't deserve what they got now will wage a war against those who will deserve what they are going to get. Now, wait a minute. Isn't he kind? He is kind. But he's also the picture of a king who scatters unrighteousness with his eyes and with his authority. The Lord, in his kindness towards man, in a season which we call grace, has suspended judgment against Christ-rejecting people groups who misunderstand God and who endeavor to humiliate the God of the universe by humiliating the church of Jesus Christ. And there's a day in the sufferings that we will experience, the beards shorn, the garments rent, in what it is we don't do and the things that we do do, in which God says, now, come on up, and I'm going to bring something down. And it's a judgment. David's used in this as a picture of a judgment against those who shamed his people and who challenged his authority. This is simply what you would call a military campaign right now. To some degree, it has predictability to it. But what you need to see ultimately, even apart from it, is victory because of it. It moves in to say that Ammon had been one who had ultimately now aroused the ire of the king as a result of that. What's going to happen is they realize, whoa, we've done it. We better get in reinforcements. And so they'll appeal to the Syrians to come in and help out. That's what you see here. You see this now intention to save itself because they realize that David is altogether turning a disposition that is going to judge them. And so you'll see these characters brought into this battle. It moves on, and I'm just going to jump down here and say this. David dispatches Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Verse 8, the people of Amnon came out, put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rahab, Ishtab, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best, put them in battle array against the Syrians, and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are strong, too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight." This is important to emphasize in closing in that we as believers are called by the king to exercise a strategy for victory. 
And though we may say, it looks like I'm outnumbered, you're not. Because the church is broad and expansive and beckons to the call of those who cry out to the Lord. And most importantly, what you need to see is David has already dispatched the two forces which are going to take on these enemies of God. And David also, you will find himself engaging the enemy. And this is what you need to know. We're not alone. The Lord engages the enemy. The battle belongs to the Lord. We need to believe that. And that's why in times right now in which the church is being shamed for its conviction that we must worship, we must obey God, we are ambassadors, our intentions are not malicious, we are desiring to show light into a dark world, and we're going to remain on task for it. We call upon the Lord to see us through it. And even if that may mean, and it does seem to mean, that we will be a provocation of being shamed, we will not be ashamed of our God and Lord. David comes onto the scene that battle cry here is, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. We need to pray that the Lord, oh Lord, does good in your sight in this battle for this country. August, September, October, November, less than three months, that the Lord does good for what we have the responsibilities of in not only praying for our nation, but praying for those who will serve the Lord in positions of authority that we might thwart the enemy who has infiltrated into the upper echelons of power and authority. And this is true. This is true. We have corruption. It is not intended by God to cause dysfunction in the government. And we have a responsibility to ask, Lord, we pray to you. And we're not vigilantes. We don't go out in the streets. We don't create destruction such as is being done by those who are what? Are enemies of God. And they are. That's not the way we as believers behave. We pray and we love and we give. And we trust, but we also take our stand where God has said to stand and be courageous. That's what we do. And when the people of Ammon saw, and I'm going to jump you right down to 14, that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they, notice this, had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam and Shobak, and the commander of Hadadezer's army went before them. What's happening? Reinforcements from the enemy are coming. One group says, we give up. We've had it. Joab and Abishai have got us. Another one's raised up. Yeah, well, they haven't got us yet. And that's what you need to understand. It's battle after battle for victory after victory. David enters in. It was told David he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came to Hillam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobak, the commander of their army. 
who died. Shebek, the commander of their army, is a picture of ultimately one who is antichrist, one who is against the work of the Lord. David takes him out. This is a huge battle. We're involved in a huge battle. David represents a picture in which the battle belongs to the Lord, and he is not overwhelmed by the enemy, nor are we. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made notices peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. They became the cowards. They became the docile. They became those who then submitted themselves to the reign of David, who is a picture in this tenure and in this story of superior. We come to this closure to say there's a battle. We need to stay in it. Chapter 11 says, men, women, there's a battle. We need to be certain what side of the battle we are on. Whose side? The enemy who endeavors to ensnare us in everything that relates to our appetites. Oh, Dairy Queen was for a laugh, and the donut shop was for a laugh. But it was actually, for me as well, a revelation. In one moment, God takes a secular song from 1991 and delivers it to my heart. Constant cravings. Constant cravings. And though I understand the premise of it, I don't need to be ashamed of it. I simply need to be one who exercises with prudence concerning it. I'm not going to be ashamed if you see me in a donut line. You know, I know what the Lord was saying to me in the spiritual disciplines. And I know what he wants me to share with the church. Constant cravings. That's what the world wants us to have. So when you understand the principle, and if it pleases you to have a donut, have one. When you understand the principles and you've got it down with the Lord, then a breakfast sandwich is fine. But the Lord was simply telling me, I can bring truth into your life in any moment that you're overwhelmed with cravings, which Satan endeavors to take you off course on. Dine at my table, eat of my word, drink of my blood, commune with me. Richard, are you saying you didn't? Of course I do. But that simply means is that the enemy is even more offended that I would do such a thing. He's offended when we do this for him in this church. So just be cognitively aware, sensitive in these times, sharp. Remember that we have Joab's and Abishai's that are there on flank to come to our help by a phone call, a letter, a text. Would you pray for me? The power of prayer in our times of weakness, how often those come through and we dispatch prayer requests as frequently as they come in. And people are blessed. 